The reading of the word for this morning's sermon comes from Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Please give attention to God's holy and precious word. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Father in heaven, we are so privileged now to pause in the midst of this service as we continue in worshiping you, to hear now directly from your word. Would you lead and would you guide us by your grace? Would you teach to us your word? Would you show to us the beautiful truths within it? And most of all, would you lead us to a vision, a vision by faith, of seeing the beauty and the wonder of Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Lord, be mindful of every soul in this room right now and those who are joining us via live stream. Would you know them? Would you meet them? And would you portion out your grace to them that we might together be built up in the faith and greatly equipped in grace as followers of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you've probably heard the phrase, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We're on Palm Sunday, a Sunday where we remember the entrance of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. 
It's a day of great rejoicing when you read it in the text. A day where people are quoting scripture appropriately, applying it to Jesus as he rides on that humble foal of a donkey into Jerusalem. Where people are singing and rejoicing and dancing and paying homage to Christ, laying down their cloaks and even cutting off these leafy branches, which we now uh, utilize as palms on Palm Sunday, celebrating that the one who has come to bring salvation, that's what Hosanna means, Lord save us, a declaration that indeed he has come to save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Such a Sunday as that, that the Lord by his grace would have us right here in Exodus chapter 6, a passage that in many ways is very similar to the kind of situation we see in triumphal entry of Jesus on that Palm Sunday. Now, the connection may not be immediately clear to you as to how Palm Sunday is directly connected to Exodus chapter 6, but it's, it has to do with the spiritual realities laying behind both of those important stories and texts in the Scripture. Do You see, as Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem, he came by the outskirts of a little town called Bethpage. And as he did, he entered into what we know now as the Kidron Valley, and that valley extends all the way to the, to the Mount of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And he would have caught a glimpse as he was riding on that donkey of the holy city off into the distance. As he heard the rejoicing and the worshiping of God's people, and as they laid their cloaks on the ground and waved palm branches, quoting and singing scripture, you would have thought Jesus would have been elated. You would have thought that he would have been rejoicing. But indeed, the text doesn't tell us that. In fact, there are tears rolling down Jesus' face as all of the excitement is taking place. He is weeping. He is broken down. Not with tears of fear that the cross is coming, nor with tears of joy that these people finally get what's taking place. No, these are tears of grief. Because he realizes that, O oh, Jerusalem, O oh, Jerusalem, as we read in the Scripture... You did not see the day of visitation. You don't really know what you're saying. You don't really know what you're doing. You are looking for a Savior that is of a particular earthly and political sort. And that's not the Savior that I am. I have come to establish a kingdom that is not of this world. I've come to save you from someone much greater than Rome even the shackles of the evil one and sin and death. I am truly a liberator, but not of the kind in which you are considering and desiring to have. I am the Savior that you need, but I'm not the Savior that you want. It was Jesus recognizing the spiritual darkness of the people of Israel, that they were looking for a kind of redemption that in that moment was not there. Now, what's interesting is very, something very similar is happening here in Exodus chapter 6. The end of Exodus chapter 5, Moses, who's been leading the people of Israel now back in Egypt, has spoken with the elders of Israel who have begun worshiping the Lord at the end of chapter 4. 
And Moses, who's now gone to Pharaoh and has said those fateful words, let my people go, with much anticipation that Pharaoh would deliver the people and that God would indeed do what he has promised to do, did not happen in chapter 5. Instead, Pharaoh said, no way, Jose. I'm not letting these servants go. And in fact, the fact that you would have the audacity to come and ask me to let my own slaves go means that they're not as appreciative and realizing the kind of debt that they are to me as their master. So no straw for you, said Pharaoh. You will now make bricks without any straw. And a heavier burden was played out on the backs of the people of Israel. And by the end of chapter 5, we don't hear worship. We don't see them bowing on their faces in the sand before the Lord. That God has visited them. What we see is Moses, on the behalf of the people, asking questions. Questions like this. Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Those are the words of Moses at the end of chapter 5, and almost like a dramatic pause. Those questions, we might call them allegations, are hanging in the air at the end of chapter 5 as we enter in to chapter 6. And there's there's the question in the text in the midst of the pause at the end of the chapter to the beginning of the, of the other, how will God answer the lament and in some real sense the charge that Moses has brought on the behalf of the people towards God? We were rejoicing that you've come. This is not the way deliverance is supposed to go. This is exactly the shift that we've seen spiritually in the life of God's people. And the question comes now is what does the Lord want to say to the people of Israel through Moses and communicate again the promises of his redemption and deliverance? What does God want to say now back to the questions of doubt and allegation that have been brought before him? Well, that is chapter 6. God speaking to Moses, and then from Moses to the people of Israel, what they most need to hear. And what's remarkable about this is the first thing that he tells them is something that doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. It seems like something that they ought to have known, seems something really simple. In fact, for most of you in this room, when I tell you what it is that God actually says to them, you'll think to yourself, well, of course, that's what they need to know, but easier said than done. The thing that we hear within the text of Exodus chapter 6 as the Lord responds to Moses is, the thing you need, Moses, and the thing the people of Israel need more than anything is you need to know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. This is what we see as the bold restatement of God right here at the opening of Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Notice what God says. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Here's what you need to know, Moses, more than anything, is you need to know that I am the Lord. 
Now that seems unusual because God's already told him that he is the Lord. This is the covenant name known as Yahweh in the Old Testament. This name has already been revealed to Moses earlier. He already has, as it were, the name of God. So why is it that he needs to know the Lord when he knows the Lord? Well, it's because, like you and I can attest, we can know the Lord and not really know the Lord. That's the reality for Moses and for the people of Israel. There is a knowledge that is superficial and shallow. There is a knowledge that lodges simply in the mind in terms of information and with regards to truth. And then there's a knowledge that changes you. There's a knowledge of truth that transforms you. There's a personal knowledge where you have come into encounter with Almighty God and the reality of His grace and His power. What you need, Moses, what you need, people of Israel, is to know the Lord. Now, you could get the impression here, as you hear that instruction coming forth from Exodus 6, that God is a little bit like parents can sometimes be. You know, parents will make promises. They'll say things like, you know, after lunch, we're gonna, I'm going to bake you cookies. We're going to enjoy some cookies this afternoon. The kids, you know, they jump for joy because they, they love the cookies. You know, they're looking forward to the cookies. And then they finish their peanut butter and jelly and they're wiping their face and they go, so where are the cookies? And, and mom says, well, I haven't baked them yet, right? They're, they're going to come. I told you they're going to come after lunch. That's, that's what I told you. I said they'll be after. Well, it's after lunch. We expected there to be cookies. And you can see the natives are getting restless. And mom says, now remember, I didn't tell you that immediately when you took the last swallow of your peanut butter and jelly, the cookies would magically appear before you. Cookies have to be actually made, and I haven't started making them yet, but I promised you that after lunch, I would make the cookies. And we are after lunch, but after lunch could last for days. <laughs> and days, and days of time. After lunch is a, could be a long time before mom gets around to bake, but I promised I would bake them after lunch. Now, in those moments there, it can very much sense that not only did we hear the promise of mom, but we had a very clear expectation of what the promise of mom meant in terms of how it would unfold. It's very often where we stumble, isn't it? We read God's promises and we immediately begin to make assumptions about how those promises are going to be played out. We take the hope and we make it into an expectation that this is what it will mean for the Lord. This is what it will mean and how things will unfold. God is not simply asserting here that I am the Lord. I told you I was going to bake cookies afterwards. But he is acknowledging to them that my word and what I have spoken to you is as faithful as it has ever been, even when it doesn't immediately match to your human expectations. Very often, God's plan unfolds differently than we expect. Can I get an amen on that? This is a very different sort of thing. When we walk through life with the expectations of how God's going to work, what's going to unfold, very differently does God's own working work its way out in our own lives and realities. And that's true in history as well. But the thing that the Lord wants to make known is that if you had known me, if you had really known me, all the questions and allegations that you're bringing against me of doing evil, of not delivering, would have been hushed because you would really know that I am 
the Lord. Now the message of the whole of this text is I am the Lord. You see, he says it there in verse 2. But then he says it in verse 6. This is what Moses is going to first bring to the people of Israel. What did they need to hear out of the mouth of Moses? Well, God says it in verse 6. You need to say to them, I am the Lord. What's the last thing that Moses is going to tell them in verse 8? I am the Lord. It's an it's a echo throughout the text. The thing that they need to know more than anything is that I am the Lord. And the reason that's important and the reason that God is drawing us to the recognition of his lordship and that he is the covenant God of Israel who will indeed uphold his promises and deliver them is that he wants us to remember the source from which the promises have come. Do You see, that's why we know we can bank on someone's word when we know the person who gave the word is trustworthy. The person who gave the report is someone who knows and can speak with authority. That puts you at ease when you trust your car mechanic. And if you have a trustworthy car mechanic, see me afterwards. If you can trust your car mechanic and they come to you and they say, you know, such and such is wrong with your car. See, I don't know any parts on a car. Just such and such is wrong with your car And it's going to cost you more money than you have. If you trust them and you know them to be honest and that they wouldn't take you because of your ignorance uh, to the cleaners with regards to the payment of this particular repair, pseudo repair on your car, if you trust them, it's going to put at least your mind at ease if it's going to hurt your wallet. You know that you can trust them. Because of the source from which they have come, the Lord is saying to Moses, there's no need for questions and allegations and doubts concerning what I have told you. I want you to know me at the deepest and most transformative part of your life. I want you to be able to trust me. I want you to have a sense for who I am. I want you to know the Lord. Do you know this is the biggest issue in your whole life? That's a bold statement. This is the biggest issue in your whole life. Think of all the questions that you have for God when you get to heaven. All the loose ends of your life that you're going to quiz him about to make sure that they all make sense. Now, if they don't make sense to you, I don't know what you're going to do. But I trust in that time the Lord is going to reveal to the degree that you and I can understand and our capacities to embrace. He's going to reveal to you his plan. And I believe that your testimony will be he has done all things right. But notice very often in the scriptures, we are eager for explanations. Moses is eager for explanations. And notice what God does. Does he give him the explanation that he wants? No. He gives him himself. I want you to know me. You think you need information. What you need is me. I am the Lord. I want you to know who I am, Moses. Sometimes we're coming to God for answers, and you know what we've forgotten? That God is the answer. He is the answer. That's the point that God is speaking here to Moses. That's what he's saying to you right now. On the dangling loose ends of your life, on the things where you feel like he's done evil to you, and he's not fulfilled his promises, and he's not delivered, the Lord is saying to you, I am the Lord. Know me. And maybe your response back is, Lord, I want to know you. 
I want to know you. If that's the case, if you are the answer, and if my questions would, in a, sense, in a very real sense, either be irrelevant because I come to know you or be answered because I come to know you, I want to know you. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord actually grants that by unpacking to us who he is in this text? You see, first we're told, know the Lord. I am the Lord. Secondly, we're told in this text, the Lord is explained. He is expounded in this text. Where do I see this? Well, look at verses 3 to 5 in the text. Notice what the Lord does. He begins to tell you who he is. Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. There are four things here that God tells to Moses that he wants him to know about him. And the the first is is right there in uh, in verse 3. I have appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've appeared to your forefathers, and when I did, they knew me. Notice, they knew me as El Shaddai. That's the word there translated God Almighty. Now, some of you, I think, hear Michael Card when you hear those words, El Shaddai, right? You can hear his own voice singing that, that old lovely hymn, El Shaddai. A word that means that God is powerful. He is all-powerful. He is all-mighty. Now, you can see how by God revealing himself here, he's also, he's also answering the problem of the people of Israel. What, what's their problem right now? Well... Just put yourself in their shoes. They've been hoping for the deliverance that has been spoken to them by Aaron and the wonders that have been shown by Moses. They went into Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And Israelites were waiting for Pharaoh to take it on the chin and ultimately let the people of Israel go. That was their expectation. And and Pharaoh said, no, and I'll make it harder on the people of Israel. So who right now feels mighty? Who feels mighty? Pharaoh feels mighty. If this is a competition between God and Pharaoh, Pharaoh has one and God has zero. The people of Israel are still in Egypt. Things are worse than they were before the so-called deliverance began. Thank you, Moses, for the deliverance. That's the spirit of the people of Israel. Pharaoh is the one who looks mighty. And God is saying to him, when I revealed myself to your forefathers of old, trust me, they knew me as God Almighty. And I want you to know that victory can't be declared one way or another at the end of the first inning. There's a long way to go with a mission that I have in store. And by the end of this, you will know exactly that I am El Shaddai. You will know that I am God Almighty. Notice how important that would have been for the people of Israel and how important it is for us in this room. Especially when we feel like we're under the thumb of something. It could be the thumb of a disease. It could be the thumb of a boss. It could be the thumb of a traumatic and abusive past in history. It could be from difficult circumstances providentially that have been brought into our lives of which we don't feel like we'll ever get any rescue from. It may seem like God is very weak as it relates to our story. And God is coming to you and he's saying to you, don't award the victor at the end of the first or second inning. I am God Almighty and you will see El Shaddai. That's point number one. Notice point number two is that 
the Lord reveals himself as the maker and the keeper of the covenant. Verse 4, I have made a covenant with you to give you the land of Canaan. Now, given the way things went in the first round with Pharaoh, you can imagine that the people of Israel are beginning to wonder, is he going to see through this promise of taking us all the way to the promised land? Because it really doesn't look like he is. But God wants to say to them, I will be faithful to my word. In fact, it's impossible for me not to. I am one who has yoked myself so deeply to my promises Back with Gen- in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham, where I said to Abraham and to all of his progeny, which is you, the covenant people of Israel, that if I didn't uphold my end of the promises to bring you to the land of Canaan, if I didn't do that, then the, the, the curse of the covenant would fall upon me. That I would be separated like those animals In Genesis chapter 15, if I didn't do what I said I was going to do, I was going to bring the curse on me. That's how committed I am to fulfill my promises to you. I am a God who's made covenant with you. That's a very important word in the scriptures. He's not just saying, hey, um, I'm going to try as best as I can. You have limited resources here. And there's a lot of curveballs being thrown at me by Pharaoh. But as best as I can, I'm going to try to get you to the land of Canaan. That's not the tone or the experience or the vocabulary of this text. This is a God who's saying, I have so yoked my character with my word that there is no way in the world that my hand cannot accomplish or will not accomplish that which I have told you. It's impossible. Now imagine these two coming together. He is God Almighty. And he has a plan to bring the people to Canaan. No one can stop him. And his plan is for their ultimate deliverance and blessing. He's combining these two elements to say, you know what I want you to know about me? Power and plan for your blessing. I am the Lord. Trust in me. I am the Lord. Trust in me. Now, again, our God is showing us that he can be trusted. Right now, it doesn't look maybe like a plan is unfolding in your life. Your your life is an experience in chaos theory. That's what you think. You know, it's like a pinball machine, right? Who knows what it is that's going to happen? That's, That's what it seems. Very often as we're walking through life, it's as if God is at the wheel and we're not sure he has GPS. That's the experience as we're going through life. And then for those of you who've walked with the Lord for some time, you know after decade, a decade of walking with the Lord, that sure enough, he happens as it were through what appears like a dead end on the other side, and suddenly you go, hmm, he... He actually knew the route. And all those twists and turns were meaningful. He was doing something really different than I was looking for. It might just be that he's in control. It might just be that he has a plan. God is saying, Pharaoh telling me no as a stopping of my plan is not even something worth batting an eye at. In fact, if you'll remember Israelites, do you remember? No, you won't remember this, right? But in chapter 4, I told you this was going to happen already. You remember I said, you're going to go, Moses, to to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, let my people go, and his heart's going to be hardened. And you're going to have to go again and again and again. It's going to take some time. It's going to be harder before it gets better. That's my plan. I've already told you my plan. And it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Hmm. That's how it goes. 
But God comes back and he's not rolling his eyes. He's lovingly explaining his name and lovingly showing us his character that he is worthy to be trusted. Now what I love thirdly about this is verse 5 is that we learn actually that this God, as powerful as he is, as, as planned and as committed as he is, he's a God who paces with the suffering of his people. He is a God that is full of compassion. I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians have sold as, as held as slaves. You know, so far God could be a drill sergeant, drill sergeant for all we know, right? I mean, he's one who's um, in charge. He's got a plan. He could be barking orders. He could be accomplishing things. He, he could be the most perfectly unloving, powerful executing plan person up to now. What's he now? A loving father. I have heard the groanings of my people. I have not turned a deaf ear. I am a God of compassion. I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God of love. Do you know there is nothing sweeter than being listened to? Isn't that true? Do you know, it's, it's, it's the magic of therapy and counseling is someone listening to you. Listening to you, hearing you. Some wives in here have been like, I've been looking for that from him forever. Right? You have a greater husband. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. You have his ear at all times. Cry out to him. He is listening. He hears you. And, and, and that husband probably can't do much with what you're going to tell him anyway. But the one that you would speak to in heaven, he not only will hear you, but he will bring about healing for you. Because he is powerful and he has promised and he will keep his word. This, this toughness and this tenderness, this strength tethered to love, this in control that sits and listens to his people in care and in passion is what we need so desperately. We need a God who will show us his love and his compassion. Do you know when you have someone that will listen to you, you begin to have what's wrong with you inside of you healed. And a lot of times there's not something to do, is it? It's just something to have someone hear it. He hears you right now, whatever pain you're running through, He hears you. He's listening to you. In fact, even right now as you're in this place, do you know the Holy Spirit is here? He's speaking to you in and through this word. The Lord Jesus is standing, we're told, to make intercession for you. That means He's listening to your heart. And He's making your heart known to the Father. He's, he's pleading on your behalf. He's referred to as our Advocate. The whole of a worship service is an interceding between heaven and earth. It is why very often, isn't it, week after week as you attend in the midst of the worship service, that you sense the Lord coming and speaking clearly to you? And your heart is warmed by the truth of the gospel? Why does that not happen in quite the same way in other contexts? In large part because God has promised to use his means of grace gathered on his day as a means by which to say to you, I hear you. I love you. 
What a loving God, a powerful God who has planned your redemption, who is sitting, as it were, with you in your tears. Lord is almighty. He keeps his covenant. He's compassionate. But notice, fourthly and finally, the Lord remembers. I have remembered my covenant, he says in verse 5. You know, when we say something and we promise something, we often, we, we often remember it for a little while and then we forget it. And we tend to, I think, think that God may even be a little bit like that. Do you know the covenant that he made that he referred to that I have made with your forefathers is hundreds of years in the past. <laughs> I remembered what I said a hundred years ago. I don't remember what I said yesterday. God's operating on what he said a hundred years ago. No wonder we need the help of remembering. Do you know, here's what's marvelously encouraging in this text. Notice how forgetful Moses is. God has already told him how this was going to go down just a chapter and a half ago. And he's already forgotten it and has completely lost faith. And God is kindly reminding him. But notice that the gospel and the plan goes forward not because Moses remembered but because God did. Because God remembered. You think that you will have no effect in the work of ministry because you're forgetful. Well, join the club. The effectiveness in ministry is not that you remember everything as you walk through life, but that God remembers as you walk through life. That's the effectiveness. God's remembering His covenant. There's no expiration date on His promises, my friends. And so what we see is he calls us to trust the Lord. And now he's saying to you, here's the Lord explained. Here's the Lord expounded. Do you see who he is? When I said to you at the beginning, when I said, trust the Lord, know the Lord, you're like, right. So, and now, as we've walked through those four pieces, you're saying, I get it. That's what God is doing. Do you see he's caring for Moses' soul here? He didn't just say, hey, go back and read chapter 4. He refreshly communicated to him his love and his care and his promises. That's what's marvelous about this text too is what's he going to do now? (laughs) Well, he's going to send Moses into ministry. That's verses 6 to 8. We saw the Lord explained. Now we're going to see the Lord proclaimed. That's really what we see in verses 6 to 8. Moses is now going to become the mouthpiece of God. And here's what's fascinating. What's he going to go tell them? Exactly what God just told him. It's actually a beautiful portrait of preaching. If you've ever wondered what preaching is, some of you are like, yes, please tell me what this is that is going on right now and what you're doing up there. It's strange to me, right? I get it. It is unusual. I mean, what other context in life do you show up every week to hear someone speak on a particular subject for an extended period of time? It's an unusual experience, even in the midst of a worship service. There is an oddity about that. What's actually going on? Well, what we're seeing here in the context of verses 6 through 8 As God rehearses the promises, listen to these promises. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the burdens of Egypt. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you from the outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. When he goes through each of these promises, is he telling us, um, you know, anything radically different than he's told us before? No, in fact, all of that's really embedded in the promises that he just gave about what he did in the past. 
I've kept my covenant. I'm going to keep my covenant. I'm going to do exactly what I said that I'm going to do. I'm powerful to do it. I'm with you as a people. I've remembered everything that I've said. Now go tell the people of Israel. Go tell them. And what's wonderful about this is such a great example. What's he showing us? He's showing us that the message of God in preaching to his people is a message about what God has revealed in his word to the man of God who's come to preach. Does Moses come up with his own message? No. Moses receives a message that he is to give. The message that Moses delivers consists in the message that God has delivered into the life and the heart of Moses. And part of the beauty of that is that it's actually verbatim. I I love that he didn't go, now Moses, I've told you a bunch of things. Go and be creative with it. He actually says, in fear that you would be creative, I will verbatim tell you what you should say. Say this to the people of Israel. He's very particular about what he wants to communicate. The message consists of what has been revealed by God himself. And I want you to just notice the content of the message. It consists in what God's revealed, but what's the content? It's full of the good news of redemption. It's full of the good news of the redemption. I will rescue you out of captivity in Egypt. I will bring you into the land of Canaan. I will show you through many acts of judgment my outstretched arm. You will have possession of the land which I have given you. It's just, he's overwhelming them with good news. The Exodus becomes the paradigmatic event of salvation in the Old Testament. In fact, everything will look back to the Exodus and Christ will ultimately be the fulfillment of that Exodus event. The one who is actually leading a spiritual, deeper, more profound cosmic Exodus through the cross and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension to the right hand of the Father. And when he comes again, the fullness of that Exodus will be known as we are led into the promised land. It is called the new heavens and the new earth. That is where we are headed as pilgrims who are following the Lord and his voice in the midst of the land. This message is focused on the good news of redemption. He wants the people overwhelmed with the good news of redemption. And part of what I also love about this, not only is it what God revealed, full of the good news, is it's gloriously unoriginal. Now what I mean by that in this context is that everything that Moses says to the people, he's already said to the people. He's already communicated these things. He's repeating them. Now this is, you know, I don't know if you've figured this out, but each week as you come here, you come to hear essentially the exact same thing. Have you noticed this? Some of you are like, yes! Would you please come up with something new? Like some of you are thinking now. But what's fascinating, isn't it, very often when we come into this space to hear the Word of God, just different passage, and there's always uniquenesses and peculiarities to the variety of God's story as revealed in the Bible, isn't the centrality of the redemption of God, the focus upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, His power to redeem us and to call us as His disciples to follow Him where it is that He would go with the hope of His future return and the new heavens and the new earth on the horizon of our faith are not those themes in every single time that we gather together when we come into the presence of God. And have you also not noticed that each week as you hear the same thing, it's as if you needed it. 
Have you noticed this? Me too. It's because you do. It's because I do. It's because the people of Israel did. We are a forgetful people. We are a people who who allow the truth of the Scripture to leak out of us. We We have holes in the bottom of the bucket of our hearts. And we lose sight of the glorious vision that's given to us week after week, which is why the wisdom of the Lord's Day is so important. The wisdom of coming to church, being with His people, listening to His Word, regularly being stirred up in the reminders of the faith. What Moses thought he needed was new information. What he needed was the information he had newly delivered by the power of God's grace. That's what you need. That's what we need. And this is what we see God is coming to deliver to us week after week as He is to the people of Israel. He's stirring us up by way of reminder to use the language of 2 Peter. Now as you look at this, you think to yourself, okay, I mean, who could ever turn away from this God? He is so faithful. He has promised us the moon and then some. He is almighty. He's a covenant keeper. He, he weeps with us. He's with us in our grief. He's carrying us along the way. He remembers everything that he said. And now he's in a preacher that's going to tell us over and over and over exactly what we need to hear even when we forget it. He's built in our own weakness into the plan to continue to redeem us and to grow us. He is so, so kind. And then verse 9 hits. And the people of God would not listen because of the harsh slavery and the pain of their suffering. It's really a sad commentary, isn't it? But it is very often true. In your lowest moments and your most deep and Harsh circumstances, have you found at times it's been very difficult to listen to the promises of God in those moments? I have. You're so swallowed up with the pain that you feel and the suffering and the circumstances that it's difficult to get enough separation from it to actually hear the Word of God and apply it in your own heart to your circumstances. The people of God were so overcome with pain that they were deaf to the good news of God. Now here's again what I love about our God and I hope it just bowls you over with joy that He is like this. God doesn't say then to Moses, man, you are a terrible preacher. Um, let's Let's just stop until you get your act together. Let's wait till the people of Israel hear. Let's wait. Let's wait till they hear. Let's just wait. Let's wait. Let's just... Know what God says in the next verse? Now I want you to go and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Now, that's really interesting to me. If I could, can I be a preacher for a minute? Um, you've just preached the worst message of your life, right? No success. <laughs> Everybody hates you. And then God says, I want you to go preach to a harder audience. Pharaoh. God, are you, are you okay? Do you have a temperature? Like, do we, what, what, is, what in the, I mean, they didn't listen. What, what's Moses' words? Israel didn't listen. Why is Pharaoh going to listen? That would be my logic. Same, I, I, I can, I'm with you. I'm with you, Moses. I'm looking for an answer on that one. And notice the last verse there in verse 13, what it says. It says that God, in hearing now the questions again, 
The passage that began with questions is now ending with questions. Even after God has told him all of who he is, it just says that God charged Moses and Aaron to go speak to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. You know what you have not seen is you haven't seen the people yet embrace the message in the passage. It's not even clear that the preachers have embraced the message. And God didn't wait on accomplishing his mission till they got their act together. He said, go anyway. He charged them. Well, God, I don't have faith in the message. that it, I'm not asking you about that. I'm saying go preach my message. You know, there's that old bumper sticker. God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? You remember these? Remember these bumper stickers? A few of you, three, two of you. Uh, remember these bumper stickers? My dad used to say, you know, it's not great theology. He's actually right. He says, you know, whether or not you believe it or not is a moot point. If he said it, it's settled, friends. Now, you should believe it. Please believe it. But you're not believing it isn't going to stop the mission. Do you know this holds us back in many ways, even in our own callings in life? How many times have you said, well, I just want to build my faith and become more mature before I start discipling other people or teaching Sunday school or, or having the perfect um, you know, five-point gospel presentation before I evangelize? And you've been working on it for 45 years. And eternal souls are walking around you all day long. And you're waiting to get all your act together. Because that, you know, that's when God will use you when you've got your act together. Notice the subtle implication of that. Notice the subconscious belief. The subconscious belief is God only uses people who have their act together. That says more about you than about him. Notice he's already communicated in our passage that he's almighty. You, you think your inadequacy is a problem for him? He's already coveted to accomplish his purposes. He's going to do this with or without you. He'd love to use you. He's invited you, to, you into the work. And all the equipping that you need is to know that you need him. And to go in the power of his spirit and in the simplicity of the message. And share what he has shared. I love the fact that he doesn't wait on Moses to get his act together. He doesn't wait on the people of Israel to have a revival. Oh, now we're going to accomplish something. The path of deliverance happens because God sees it through. Friends, let that encourage you as we enter into Holy Week. Let that encourage you in the fact that as Jesus was making his way and seeing the unbelief into the holy city on that day of Palm Sunday. That only moments from that day, his disciples would deny him, would desert him, and one would betray him.
And those are the people he used to build his church. Recognize the weakness of men. Be honest about the fallibility and fallenness of your character and person. And look to the Almighty One, the El Shaddai. And watch Him deliver. And as you go, repent. As you fumble through life, obeying and not feeling like you're doing a very good job, repent of that. And then revel and rejoice in the fact that He saved you from that too. And that's just how good He is. That's just how good He is. As we enter into Holy Week, may it be that this will be the first time you invite someone to church on Easter. Might, might it be a family member that it's, it's time around Easter dinner to begin to approach them over matters that matter? I don't know. But I don't care so much about your inadequacy. I care about the almighty faithfulness of our God who's covenanted to save a people for his own possession. Trust him and watch him deliver. Father in heaven, would you please renew our hearts as we walk into Holy Week and let the truths which we have learned today at your feet be truths that continue to sound and echo and remind in our own hearts in days, weeks, years ahead. And would you in our own weaknesses show your mighty strength and would you once again surprise us as you have done so faithful to do of your never-failing grace. Come now and hear this prayer and meet with us continually, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.